Jordan has really fully adopted the Trumpian mode of politics, which is far more about you never accept defeat. Not never accepting defeat in the sense of uh, I'll come back. I mean, literally never accepting defeat is no, I'm not going to go away. You're listening to the USSC Briefing Room, a podcast from the United States Study Center at the University of Sydney, where we give you a seat at the table for a USSC briefing on the latest developments in US news and foreign policy. We'll cover what you need to know and what's beneath the surface of the news. Hello, I'm Mari Kirk, Director of Engagement and Impact at the USSC. Before we begin, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land we're recording on today. The University of Sydney is located on the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and I pay my respects to their elders, past, present, and future. So this month has been incredibly tumultuous in US politics. We had the historic ousting of House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, courtroom drama in the cases against former President Trump and war breaking out in Israel, prompting President Biden to make an urgent trip to the country. To help make sense of this, we've invited Associate Professor in American Politics and Foreign Policy, David Smith, back on the podcast. He's one of our most prolific political analysts. You'll regularly hear him on ABC Radio Drive. And I highly commend his book, Religious Persecution and Political Order in the United States, to anyone who is interested in the history of some of the dynamics between religion and politics we see playing out today. Uh, And David, your book came out in 2015, before President Trump was elected. Have you thought about doing an update with the shifts that we've seen from 2016 onward? It would be a very interesting exercise to do an update like that because religion has played such an important part in Trump's presidency. Trump, I would argue, has actually changed the whole character of evangelical Christianity (laughs) in the United States. He's really brought the kind of Pentecostal and charismatic elements of it from the political fringes to the political center of evangelicalism, with the result that the evangelical bloc, which was so powerful in its support of George W. Bush, for example, now actually looks very, very different um, in its support of Donald Trump. Uh, Obviously, when it comes to issues around religious persecution, Trump also put those on the table in a very big way by having immigration bans that targeted Muslim-majority countries, bans which were ultimately upheld by the Supreme Court, and bans which he is promising to re-implement on a much bigger scale if he gets elected. So I have not had the time to write an updated version of the book, and it maybe is the sort of thing that can only be done once the Trump era is finished, but who knows when that's going to be. Wow. Okay. So not so much an update to the book as a whole new book, a whole new paradigm. Okay. Wow. Sounds great. And at the end of the episode, uh, we're going to have our by the numbers stat from David. So I'm really looking forward to hearing that. But to kick things off earlier this month, Kevin McCarthy was ousted as Speaker of the House for the first time in America's history. The race to replace him has been anything but smooth. As we're recording, Jim Jordan has just lost his second vote on the House floor. So what David, do you think it's working for Jim Jordan and what is working against him at the moment? Jim Jordan has clearly alienated a lot of members of the Republican conference. Jordan would have expected to get elected on the strength of his association with Trump, that the same elements of the Republican base that are so supportive of Trump 
he at least has been arguing, along with a lot of his allies, including media allies like Sean Hannity, that they're also very supportive of him. And given the fact that most Republican members of the House and the Senate seem to be very attentive to this uh, pro-Trump base and very responsive to what they believe the base wants, I think Jordan believed that that was going to carry him over the line. It was basically a threat to members of the House that if you don't support me, then we are going to tell the base that uh, you can't be trusted and that you don't support Trump and you're going to get primary. Now, interestingly, that hasn't happened. Instead, in the first vote uh, on Jordan, 20 members of the Republican conference voted against him. And in the second vote, 22 members have voted against him. So he did actually gain two members, but he lost another four. So he's on a downward trajectory at the moment. So even though that strong identification with Trump works with him, works for him really well, um, his total lack of collegiality in the Republican House is really working against him. I believe it was Kevin McCarthy who once described Jordan as a political terrorist. A lot has been made of the fact that he has never sponsored a bill that has actually uh, passed into law, even though he has supported bills that have passed into law. He's never actually sponsored one, which has led to the accusation that he's not really serious about legislation. He's serious about exercising power within the Republican conference and uh, also about media attention, which is another accusation that's been leveled against a lot of these insurgents like Matt Gates, who brought down Kevin McCarthy. Now, I'm not coming up with these terms myself. These are accusations being leveled from within the Republican conference uh, among what is left off the mainstream of what used to be known as the mainstream of the Republican conference. These are their complaints uh, against McCarthy and against people like Gates. And I think that they are particularly upset about the fact that when they initially voted for Steve Scalise, who is a more respected member of the House, um, he's number two Republican in the House, has a long legislative record, also somebody who was really seriously wounded in a horrific incident of violence uh, back in 2017, and as a result has always denounced um, political violence. So he was the one that won the vote initially, but then Jordan and his allies basically made it very clear that they weren't going to support him on the House floor, that it was going to be Jordan or nothing. And I think large numbers of Republicans who had supported McCarthy, not necessarily because they liked him, but because they thought that was the right thing to do for stability, were infuriated by these tactics from Jordan's supporters that basically it's our guy or no one. And uh, in the words of one of them, they're not going to reward that behaviour because now Jordan is turning around and making the argument that you need to vote for me uh, for the for the stability of the House. Unlike Scalise, so Scalise stepped aside when he saw that he wasn't going to have the support, uh, Jordan didn't. Jordan's held on for a second vote and he's giving every indication he's going to hold on further. And this really exemplifies the differences between Jordan and Scalise. There's not much between them ideologically. They both believe in the same things politically. Uh, both of them support Trump's claims that he actually won the 2020 election. That's not where the difference is. The difference is 
Jordan has really fully adopted the Trumpian mode of politics, which is not about you have wins, you have losses, you you regroup, you come back. It, it's far more about you never accept defeat. Not that not never accepting defeat in the sense of uh, I'll come back. I mean, literally never accepting defeat. In, no, I'm not going to go away. Um, I'm just going to stick around until everybody else is exhausted. And Jordan is very much the Trump school of bend reality to your will. Don't do what something like what someone like Steve Scalise does and step aside when you know you've lost. Jordan is just going to hang on because he has a much higher tolerance for uh, chaos and damage being inflicted on the institution and the country than other Republicans. That's his basic calculation, that he has signaled he is absolutely willing to destroy the Republican Party, to destroy the House of Representatives, if necessary, to destroy the country in order to get into uh, in order to get into this position. And he believes he's got a much higher tolerance threshold than uh, than his opponents. So I don't know what's going to happen. It is possible. I mean, all of these people, no matter how uh, bloody-minded they are, they're always dependent on the support of allies. So it's possible that Jordan's own allies could uh, force him to back down. Um, but what we've seen in the case of Trump is Trump's allies never force him to back down. And, uh, you know, Trump, in, in that sense... The only uh, the only group that can really stop him is other Republicans who haven't been able to do that, and I think that that's that's what Jordan was also um, was also trying to do was basically to indicate he would just hold on. Um, but it's possible that having lost two votes now and losing more votes, that his own allies might actually force him out. But we'll see. Well, it's interesting. It makes reminds me of that. I believe it's Abraham Lincoln quote, right? That a house divided against itself cannot stand. Um, and the two di- the differences between Jordan and Scalise feel like they couldn't be more stark. And Scalise was much more congenial. And he made the call to not go to a floor vote um, because he knew he didn't have the numbers he needed. Do you think that was the right call for him to bow out before it got to that point? I think it was because he... He was not going to get the numbers, and it was going to be a another defeat for Republicans on the floor of the House of Representatives. And uh, I, I think he actually does care about reopening the House of Representatives. Um, Jordan does not, and that's one of the major differences between them. So I think it, it was the right decision in terms of government. Whether it was the right decision strategically, I suppose, is a is another issue. Hmm. Um, and the last thing on the House Speaker race is that um, in Jim Jordan's votes on the House floor, um, Minority Leader Hakeem Jeffries has actually received more votes. Um, so there has been some talk of a bipartisan speaker. With how close the House is between the two parties at the moment, would there be a viable pathway to have either a Democrat or bipartisan speaker? That's a very interesting question. Certainly not a Democrat. So Hakeem Jeffries, who, by the way, I think now holds the record for the most number of votes ever gained for the Speaker of the House because of the fact that he was voted for by Republicans through 15 rounds of, uh, <laughs> of voting the first time around 
and um, it's it, and now has gone through uh, three rounds. Um, with that, I think gives him the actual record for most number of votes, even though he's not Speaker of the House. Um, so he has now been suggesting a bipartisan solution. He has said, uh, you know, we know that Republicans temporarily hold the gavel. We're not suggesting a Democrat. He's not suggesting himself, but he has said there are Republicans that we respect. And he has mentioned Patrick McHenry, who is the interim Speaker of the House. Um, but he said, but Jim Jordan is not one of those. Jim Jordan is the the poster child of MAGA. We are never, ever going to vote for him. So if a solution like this were to come about, it would be a Republican that Democrats felt that they could work with. Now, that is in itself um, something we've seen is fraught with danger. So the reason why people like Matt Gates and other rebels gave for getting rid of Kevin McCarthy was the fact that he worked with Democrats, that when it came to crunch time, he actually had to work with Democrats rather than with rebel Republicans in order to get a stopgap uh, funding measure through. So, But um, it, it should be noted, though, that McCarthy was very duplicitous in his dealings with Democrats and actually left Democrats with the sense not only that they couldn't trust him, uh, but also that after having made considerable sacrifices themselves to negotiate this uh, stopgap arrangement with McCarthy, McCarthy then turned around and claimed to the media that they had tried to sabotage uh, this deal. And that was the final nail in, in McCarthy's coffin. He was... Uh, in the end, just not very good at his job. Um, so Democrats, they they possibly could line up behind a Republican, but any Republican who gets the speakership under those circumstances is obviously going to face a huge backlash from this right-wing rebel faction of the Republican Party. So I think it is a possible solution, but I don't know how likely it is. Another possible solution is McCarthy coming back is you know enough Republicans deciding it was a mistake to get rid of him in the first place. Certainly a lot of Republicans are very upset with the way that he's out, he was ousted. And there are Republicans who've said they won't vote for anybody else uh, but Kevin McCarthy. So uh, that's another possibility of, uh, of him coming back. I think one of the dynamics that we need to take into account with all of this is that some Republicans are so insulated from the uh, basically from the general electoral public that all that they need to really worry about uh, is these battles that they're fighting within the Republican Party. So someone like Matt Gates, he was re-elected in his district in Florida uh, last time around with, I think, 30, a, a 36% margin over his uh, Democratic challenger. That was while he was under investigation for sexual misconduct and misuse of funds. Now, someone in that position, they, you know, they don't need to worry about the things that Republicans in New York State need to worry about. Those who won uh, elections in districts that Biden won, uh, these are among the Republicans now who are voting against Jim Jordan because they believe that Jim Jordan would make it impossible for them to get reelected. Someone like Matt Gates, he doesn't have to worry about that at all. Um, in fact, for a lot of Republicans, their biggest concern is a primary challenge from the right rather than having to worry about a, a Democratic challenger. So 
that means that it's not just about ideological differences for Republicans or differences over how government works. It's about they've got very different career incentives uh, for for doing what they're doing. Um, some Republicans, they're not just upset with Jim Jordan. They believe it would be impossible for them to get reelected uh, if if Jim Jordan was actually the majority leader of the House. Well, anyway. So much happening on the Republican side of things. And of course, the elephant permanently in the room with that is Donald Trump. Um, So I'd like to talk a little bit about the latest happenings with him. Um, So this week he was issued with a gag order in his D.C. trial over alleged um, efforts to overturn the 2020 election. Uh, Is this sort of gag order unprecedented? And do you think it will achieve what it aims to do? Well, the the criminal trial of a former president uh, or even the civil trial of a former uh, president is unprecedented. So yes, uh, putting a gag order on the president is unprecedented. It's worth noting that this is a fairly limited gag order. It's not saying that he can't talk about the case. The gag order even explicitly says Donald Trump is allowed to say that this is politically motivated. Uh, but he is not allowed to intimidate witnesses or tamper with the jury pool or uh, or di- just directly attack um, the judge or their staff. Now that's, that's a fair, fairly narrow gag order. Um, and I would say this is absolutely necessary for the rule of law that when someone effectively is engaging in witness intimidation, which has been doing through his statements uh, which really denigrate witnesses and suggest that they shouldn't be cooperating, Um, or when he is trying to get political leverage out of not just saying that it's politically motivated, but really personally attacking members of the judicial staff and making completely unfounded claims about their relationships with each other, things like that, then in the interests of the rule of law, you need to be able to say that someone isn't above the law just because they're a presidential candidate. The problem with this is uh, one law professor has described this as a win-win situation for Trump because any gag order that gets put in place, he is going to violate it and there's not really anything that anyone can do to enforce it. Uh, They can't enforce it because it is logistically as well as politically impossible to apply the usual remedy, which would be to put Trump in jail. So if you look at another high-profile case, Sam Bankman-Fried has actually been put in jail uh, for witness witness tampering. Um, you just can't do that with Trump, who is entitled under law to uh, Secret Service protection. It would it would be logistically impossible, and certainly this gag order allows him to claim that these politically motivated Democrats are trying to silence him. Uh, in order to interfere with the election. This is the big line that uh, that he's running. And he can, so he gets to claim that persecution. At the same time, it's not going to stop him from saying anything. He's just, he's going to keep willingly violating the gag order just in order to demonstrate that he can. Uh, this is another thing that will whip up support. Like they try to keep me down, uh, but they can't. So it is... Even though I think that the gag order is necessary, it's it's well designed. Um, it needs to be there as a matter of uh, as a matter of legal principle. You can't just allow witness tampering. Uh, at the same time, it is a yeah, it, it's kind of a win win for Trump. Really, the only remedy 
that the judge actually has is holding the trial as quickly as possible to minimize the amount of time that the Trump has to tamper with witnesses or the jury pool. Yeah, and Trump has said that he's going to appeal um, this gag order, which could delay the trial, which is scheduled to start in March, shortly after Super Tuesday. Yeah. Uh, but really, by the time Super Tuesday happens, if you know the polling and everything can continues in the direction it's been, you know Trump will quite likely you know have secured the votes that he needs to be the Republican Party's nominee for president. Um, but so let's say he gets to the point where he's the presumptive nominee before any of the trials actually happen. Then he's convicted of crimes before the election. Do we know how that might impact his candidacy? I know we are in completely uncharted territory here, but you know, you've said it's really untenable or impossible for you know the judge to throw him in jail for some logistical reason. So if he's convicted, how could that impact the candidacy? Yeah, that's a very good question. Certainly, I often get asked, is he legally allowed to run for president if he's in prison or being convicted of a crime? And the answer is yes. There's nothing in the Constitution that stops someone from running for president even when they're in prison. The precedent for that is Eugene Depps in 1920, who got 6% of the vote uh, from prison as a socialist candidate. Um, so there's nothing to stop him legally from running for president. If he gets convicted, as I said, I think it's going, so it, it's certainly logistically impossible to put him in jail. I think it's also pretty much logistically impossible to put him in prison to serve a sentence. When other leaders worldwide have been convicted of crimes, generally they serve some kind of house, home detention. Now, that could be a possibility with Trump, but they, I mean, judges would have to take very seriously the fact that if by that point he is already the presumptive nominee of the Republican Party, how much are they interfering with the political process by putting limits on his movement that would limit his ability to campaign? There are not really any easy answers um, to this question. And my view of this from the beginning has been, I don't think that any of these criminal trials are going to take him out of contention to be president. And the simplest reason for that is, no matter what they do to him, uh, the usual way that people get taken out of contention of politics is by themselves actually deciding that the odds are so against them that they're going to step down. The, you know, the way that Scalise did uh, in the House vote, the way that Nixon did when he was facing the possibility of certain impeachment. And as I said earlier, for people like Trump and Jim Jordan, that is not the way that they act. They signal, I have a much higher tolerance for this kind of chaos than any of my opponents do. I am going to hang on. I'm just not going to uh, go anywhere. That's what Trump's going to do. So nothing is going to uh, actually remove him from the race, apart, I would say apart from a health crisis. Um, uh, he is, uh, you know, the, the legal system, for, certainly for, for Democrats hoping that he's going to go away, the legal system is not going to, or Republicans hoping that he's going to go away, because there are a few of them too, the legal system is not going to provide that remedy. Um, as far as the timing of these trials go, even though dates have been set for those trials, yeah, we still get to see how these appeals processes are going to play out. The 
prosecutors seem to be fairly confident that at least a couple of these trials are going to happen before the election. But I think the one that carries potentially the most serious consequences, which is the Georgia racketeering trial, because that's so big and so complicated and has so many defendants, because that is the trial that is um, following the most sort of conventional standard of, uh, of criminal prosecution because it's happening at the state level. I think that one is not going to take place until after the election. I can't see that one um, happening happening earlier, but it's, it is possible that some of these other trials um, could happen earlier. According to legal analysis that I've read, the trial in which conviction is actually the most likely, they th- and this apparently is what prosecutors think as well, is the documents case. Even though that's happening in Florida, which uh, you know could potentially have a fairly pro-Trump jury, that's the one that is often described as the the most open and shut case. There are so many things that Trump has actually said and done that are recorded uh, that in, that really incriminate him in this case. And it's also a case where there's, even though it's a pretty unprecedented situation, there's not really a lot of novel interpretation of the law going on. Uh, one of the worries about the other cases, Alvin Bragg's case in New York, Jack Smith's case in D.C., and uh, even the Georgia racketeering case is that it actually involves novel interpretations of the law from prosecutors, which the documents case doesn't really seem to, or at least doesn't seem to in the same way. So that's the one that should be the most open and cut. However, whenever you've got a jury trial, uh, you know you never know what's going. You never know what's uh, what's going to happen. Even though that's the one that would be. Uh, Perhaps the one where he's most likely to get a conviction, though, that probably wouldn't have particularly serious consequences. Even if it was uh, logistically and politically possible to sentence Trump to prison, I actually don't think I'd see a judge sentencing him to uh, to prison for that, especially the judge who's in, in charge of it, who is uh, Eileen Cannon. I mean, it's a non it would be a non-violent first offence uh, where really nobody got hurt, despite the fact it was incredibly improper. Um, And nobody's ever been sent to jail for uh, this kind of improper handling of documents before. That's not an espionage espionage case. So, um, yeah, this is the one where he's most, where I think he should be most likely to get convicted, but also least likely for anything uh, serious to happen. Whereas... Jack Smith's case in Washington and the uh, the Fulton County racketeering case, they could potentially carry serious sentences with them. I mean, it'll be so interesting. You know, a year from now, we'll be just a couple of weeks out for the election. We'll be very interested to see how that goes. And this almost puts the whole concept of an October surprise, uh, you know, out of the window because it's like every month there's a surprise. And anything we would have historically considered an October surprise, I just don't see it. Everything would pale in comparison to what we're actually seeing on almost a monthly basis. So now, quickly, I wanted to turn to Israel. Uh, and the war in Israel has sparked immense division globally. Um, and within America, in the you know political sphere, with the rise of far-right candidates like Vivek Ramaswamy, who doesn't want to fund um, international interventions uh, for support for Ukraine and Israel, 
and then even progressive left politicians who want to walk back from some of the U.S.'s long-term support from Israel. Is the direction of the U.S. shifting on Israel or other international issues? I don't think that it's shifting on Israel. I think there's still a very strong bipartisan consensus around Israel. In terms of those two elements, starting with the Democrats, there have always been groups of progressive Democrats who want the United States to take a less pro-Israel stance than it actually does. And these groups, no matter how um, no matter how prominent they are, they never really managed to change the mainstream stance of the Democratic Party, and I don't see them changing it now, um, especially not with Joe Biden, who even by the standards of the Democratic Party is a very pro-Israel president. As far as the Republican side goes, um, I think more significant than Vivek Ramaswamy is actually Tucker Carlson expressing a lot of scepticism. Uh, about US support for Israel under these circumstances, really pushing back against Republicans who have said that this was an attack on the United States as well as an attack on Israel, really essentially forming a position that is consistent with his position on Ukraine. Uh, Tucker Carlson is currently a more influential figure in the Republican Party than Vivek Ramaswamy. Um, And I mean, I think Vivek Ramaswamy is represented at the same position. Even though I think in many ways Tucker Carlson has actually dragged a lot of the Republican Party to his position on Ukraine, Israel is different because Republicans have historically had far stronger opinions about Israel than they had about Ukraine. Uh, So with Ukraine, they were willing to be persuaded by the argument that, well, by many arguments that... uh, you know, the US shouldn't have any role in a territorial conflict. This is costing too much money. Sort of always a bit of a suggestion that actually, uh, you, you know, Putin is their friend and uh, not their enemy. Um, Israel is very different, though, because there are multiple factions in the Republican Party that, for various reasons, are extremely pro Israel, including a lot of Trump's base, a lot of that Pentecostal and charismatic base that I was talking about is unwaveringly pro-Israel because Israel is so important to biblical prophecy and because they believe that the state of Israel needs to be restored in order for the events of biblical prophecy to unfold. Now, that's not a majority of evangelical Christians by any means, but that's a uh, significant slice of the electorate that Trump really openly courted when he was uh, when he was president. And moves like uh, moving the US embassy to Jerusalem, which is de facto recognition of Jerusalem as Israel's capital. That was something that previous presidents had said that they would do, but didn't do. One of the things that motivated Trump to do it was the fact that he was surrounded by uh, his evangelical advisory council, which was mainly made up of Pentecostal and charismatic Christians who believe in the importance of Israel for biblical prophecy. So, uh, you know, there is them. There is the uh, you know the, the remnants of the neoconservative movement uh, within the Republican Party. So people like Nikki Haley and uh, and Lindsey Graham, as well as that, um, I would say there's there is still a kind of generalized sense of an Islamic enemy that 
really originates with Iran and spans to other parts of the Islamic world, including Hamas. So immediately after the Hamas attack uh, on southern Israel, there was commentary from the right suggesting that Iran must be behind this attack. I think that there's very limited evidence that Iran was actually behind the attack. Certainly Iran funds Hamas, but I don't, I don't see any evidence at the moment that Iran was instructing um, Hamas to act in this way. Um, so I, th I think that that is part of it as well, um, that ac across various factions of the Republican Party, there's this sense of Iran as the enemy and that uh, Israel is, is, is a front in that conflict, the, it, basically an existential um, conflict with the Islamic enemy that is based in Iran. So I, I think that though all of those factors are powerful enough that the Republican Party is not going to change, regardless of what Tucker Carlson uh, says. I mean, Tucker Carlson is not actually connected with, uh, with any of those factions of the, uh, of the Republican Party, but I think those factions still, uh, still remain very powerful. So I don't actually see Democrats or Republicans um, changing their positions. And where is Trump in, in his comments on Israel in light of the latest conflict? So tr Trump's main uh, line is has been, this wouldn't have happened if I was president. Uh, he says the same thing about Ukraine. That's basically the line that he's decided on. But certainly he's very big on standing with Israel. That's that's a very important part of his uh, his appeal to his base. Uh, but yeah, that's his basic line, that this, this wouldn't have happened. I think one of the things that has become clear over the last two weeks is that Trump and Biden were both pursuing policies in the Middle East that were duped around the thinking that Israel could just negotiate all of these agreements with other Arab states without actually resolving the Palestine issue. And certainly this was always Benjamin Netanyahu's thinking that uh, you know, even though Arab states had always insisted that there could really be any uh, normalization of relations with Israel without a resolution to the Palestinian issue, he didn't believe it. He believed that Israel, by this point, actually had enough in common with a lot of Arab countries because of the threat of Iran that they could negotiate regional agreements without, um, you know, without doing anything about the uh, Palestinian issue and. Even though Donald Trump was initially, I think, very serious about wanting to negotiate peace between the Israelis and the Palestinians, and in typical Trump fashion, he believed that others just hadn't had the ability to do it, that he had the ability to do it um, because he was the ultimate deal maker, and this in many ways is the ultimate real estate deal. He believed that personal closeness with leaders was the key to it, and he did become very personally close both to Benjamin Netanyahu and Mahmoud Abbas on the Palestinian side. But he wasn't able to negotiate uh, peace with the Israelis and the Palestinians. It was too complicated. And his approach, which was basically not really offering the Palestinians much in the way of land or independence, but offering them vast amounts of aid money, that, that just didn't wash. So when that didn't work, 
Um, he was then really drawn to this idea of instead negotiating these regional agreements between Israel and uh, other Arab countries. And so the result of that was the Abraham Accords, which is an incredibly grand name, you know, named after Abraham, the, the uh, you know, revered common ancestor of both Jews and Muslims. But when you look at what it actually was, it was an agreement between Israel and two Arab countries, the UAE and Bahrain. Um, I remember it was heralded in a lot of the Western media as a peace deal. Israel and the UAE had never been at war with each other, and their militaries have been cooperating with each other since 2017. And it was, I mean, there were exciting elements of this for a lot of people, the fact that there will now be direct flights from Jerusalem to Dubai and and things like that. But really, both the UAE and and Bahrain were fairly peripheral to the actual Arab-Israeli conflict. This was not like the agreement that was negotiated in 1978 between Israel and Egypt, where Egypt was a really serious player in the region, was a country that had been at war with Israel, was a country that shared a border with Israel. This was a lot less significant than that, but it was sold um, by both the Americans and Netanyahu as being this really important new development because this showed that you could have agreements between Israel and Arab states um, without resolving the Palestinian issue. But I think everyone understood that this didn't really mean much without Saudi Arabia. And so Trump had always wanted Saudi Arabia to be the next one to get on board. Biden, doing as he's done with a lot of foreign policy issues, basically um, following a similar policy to Trump but saying, I can do this much better, um, this was his, you know, this was his aim. This was something he's been trying to negotiate over the last year, a normalization of relations between Israel and uh, and Saudi Arabia. And Franklin Foer, who's one of Biden's advisors, has explained Biden actually did see this as the path to peace with the Palestinians because he believed that it would be so important for Netanyahu to have this normalization agreement with Saudi Arabia that Netanyahu would actually agree to inevitable um, Saudi demands about the need to negotiate a two-state solution. I think that that was far too hopeful. Um, and not only was it far too hopeful because, as we can see now, it's impossible for Saudi Arabia to make a normalization agreement uh, while this war is going on, but I also don't think it ever would have got to the point of the Saudis being able to pressure Netanyahu into a two-state solution because Netanyahu staying out of uh, his own corruption trial was dependent on him staying in power, which was dependent on a coalition that involves members of the Knesset who will never, ever negotiate with the the Palestinians. That's one of their basic um, points. So, I mean, there are lots of uh, lots of reasons, lots of causes, lots of factors in what is going on in this vast human tragedy uh, in Gaza and southern Israel at the moment. But um, in terms of where the United States was involved, I think we are seeing a bipartisan failure of policy. I think we're seeing an unrealistic expectation of how much Israel and the Arab states could just be sort of united together by mutual hostility to Iran without solving the Palestinian issue. I think that, uh, unfortunately, um, 
you know, we're seeing part of what we're seeing is that is the consequences of neglecting the Palestinian issue. Well, all right. So thank you. I have so much to digest there. Just one last thing before I let you go. I'd love to get your by the numbers um, stat related to what we've talked about today. What do you have for us? Okay. The number is five. Okay. That's the majority that Republicans had in the House of Representatives after the 2022 election. And there's a lot of coverage of uh, Kevin McCarthy's woes that has basically said that it was inevitable that he was going to lose the speakership because he had such a small majority uh, that in order to get the speakership in the first place, he was forced into agreeing to this rule which would allow anyone to pass a motion to vacate speakership. But the significant thing about the number five, as many Republicans have pointed out, that's the same majority that Democrats had after the 2020 election. And Democrats looked at that tiny majority and said, that tiny majority means we all need to work collectively. Even though there were a lot of Democrats who were very dissatisfied with Nancy Pelosi, there was never any possibility that they would have done something like this. When Republicans looked at that tiny majority that they had, some of them, the Matt Gateses and the Jim Jordans of the world, looked at that and thought, that gives us a huge amount of individual leverage or gives small groups a huge amount of individual leverage to get our way uh, in Congress. And uh, I'm not, uh, as I said, it's Republicans who have pointed this out. Okay, Even Marjorie Taylor Greene has said that for all of her disagreements with Nancy Pelosi, she respected the way that Nancy Pelosi was able to keep the Democratic caucus intact with a tiny majority, which no Republican seems to be able to do. Well, thank you so much, David. Every time I talk to you, I feel like I understand these complexities so much better. So thank you for coming on the podcast and helping to parse through all of this today and look forward to chatting with you again. My pleasure. As we wrap up, I'd like to point out a couple of other podcasts that may be of interest. Our USSC Live podcast series runs recording from our major live events. Recent episodes include a breakdown of the GOP candidate presidential debate, which featured David, and our readout from White House National Security Council staff, Kirk Campbell, Edgar Kagan, and Mira Rapp-Hooper. You can also check out our Technology and Security podcast, TS, run by the inaugural Director of Emerging Technology, Dr. Mia Hammond-Airy. You can find these on our website, ussc.edu.au, or wherever you get your podcasts.